In this episode of Investors and Operators, I sit down with Caroline Young. Caroline is a former client when she was at HKW, and we have stayed in contact with her new venture, which we'll be going into. Actually, it's not too new. It's been like a year or two, so it's not new. Yeah, I'm on year three. <laughs> I'm on year three, Jordan. 2020. Oh, my gosh. That's past startup phase. Um, I know. But I thought this would be an interesting conversation because Caroline has had over 20 years in private equity, uh, working on dozens of exits when she was uh, working with HKW, and those are worth you know multiple billions of dollars. And I thought it would be interesting to not just talk about uh, the exit process, working with private owners, and uh, but also want to cover... Uh, a wide range of topics, including advice for women in the workforce at all stages of their career. So, Caroline, would love to have a little bit of context for the audience here on your life and career. Awesome. Excited to be here, Jordan. Honored that you want to talk to me. I have kind of a different career path into private equity. I actually was a litigator for nine years. Not your usual launching pad to PE, but it actually was awesome because it was a good solid nine years out of my comfort zone, learning how to present and argue and negotiate and great skill set. But I very happily shifted and was fortunate to get a job at HKW. Started for a short time in uh, a legal capacity, but quickly saw that wasn't the value proposition I wanted for me or the firm. So with the help of a great mentor, maneuvered to more of an operational role and actually um, took over a couple companies as the point person right as they starting the exit process and just dove in, drove the processes. They were super successful. And Glenn Skolnick was like, hey, you're good at it. You want to do it full time? So I became the exit partner and ran all the exits, sat on boards, value creation, the whole gamut. And I loved it. It was super fun. Stressful, but fun. Well, let's talk about Crassberry just to give a little bit more context about what you're doing now. And then I'd love to dive into kind of the dynamics around exits with founder owners and the PE firms. Sure. So after 20 years at HKW, was just a great, a great home for me. I decided it was time for chapter three in the summer of 2020. Great time to start your own gig. I shifted over to Craftsbury and I'm doing two things with Craftsbury. A good chunk of my time is career development work, mostly with women. Men too. I do kind of coaching, retreats, workshops, Absolutely love it. Love being able to leverage my experience in PE and my experience as the only woman in the room to help others. And it's just, you know, there's not a lot of sounding boards out there. So it's been really meaningful and fun for me. Love it. But I'm also doing another piece that I love, and that's working on the exit side and working with business owners on how to get ready for an exit, what an exit means. And there's just not a lot of great resources out there for for owners. And it's a huge advantage to understand the exit ecosystem and who they need help from and how to get ready. And uh, so that's been really fun too. I'm I'm loving it. Loving Craftsbury. You know, out of, let's say out of every 10 women that you work with, how would you divide it? Is it like four who are, you know, in their 20s and then four who are in their 30s and the two who are 40s and and more? Like, how does it kind of break down initially? Most of the women I work with are mid-senior level. 
So I'd probably say in terms of my one-on-one engagements, half are sort of the managing direct director, managing director, maybe a little over half, and then vice presidents as well in both PE and investment banking and private companies as well. So mid to senior level women. What do they usually want to talk about in the first meetings? Is it, oh my God, I'm 35. I, you know, my life situation has completely changed. Do I even even want this career anymore? Or like, I'm not financially successful enough or is it all of the above? (laughs) <laughs> Most of it's like, hey, I'm cranking. I, I get hired by great investment banks and PE funds to work with high-performing women. This isn't about, mm, you know, poor performers. Let's see if we can help them. This is about taking great people and making them even better. And most, a lot of what I do is I do a 360, so I get really great feedback that one of the things you you know you ask about learnings one of the learnings is it's hard to give really direct feedback so i get really direct feedback and then i can use that with the women in terms of how do you get promoted and i have a really high promotion rate which is makes me feel awesome what do i as a you know as the client what do i need to do to get to the next level that's what they want to talk about and how can i leverage my strengths push past what's getting in the way and in a lot of cases how do I shift from project management? I just had a call, woman from a great firm, mid-level woman. I'm great at running deals, but I know now's the time I need to start bringing in business. And how do I build out my niche? How do I bring in clients? How do I win pitches? You know, how do I be that rainmaker for the firm? And that's what's really exciting to me because that's if you you know if you're say you're in investment banking and you start really bringing in the business, you know that's that's your ticket to a great career and recognition and security in what you're doing. So that's fun for me. I'd love to hear your thoughts around how you define success mm-hmm. because uh, Jing and I have thought a lot about that recently at year five of our business after doing mm-hmm. six years of banking, seven years of law for her. And we're like, you know, this is not a $25 million business. Are we successful yet? Like what's wrong with us? You know? And then we had to start asking ourselves like, all right, let's take a big step back. And for us, where we're currently at, you know, to kind of provide a little more context is like, we felt a lot of anxiety around this idea of success. And then I realized on our drive to Chattanooga for vacation, like, hold on a second. We've been married for 10 years. We still like each other. Check. Number two, we have a business together that we spend time together and it's year five. Like it's survived. We're past the startup phase. Now our scale up. Okay. Check. Number three, we have a three and a six-year-old who are happy. They generally like us. We generally like them. (laughs) We get along with family. (laughs) And then we get to do the other stuff with around uh, our training and endurance stuff. So like, okay, maybe just need to reshape how we are defining success and financial success will come if we're extending the duration of how we're defining financial success from five years to 10 or 15. So with that context, I'd love to hear, do you think that you have been successful and how do you coach your clients on thinking through that? 
That's such an awesome question. And it goes to the heart to me of what what I want my engagement to be about and how I think about things. Because one of the very first questions I ask people is what feeds your soul? What what gives you meaning? And how do you tie that to what you're doing? You know, for me at HKW, what brings me meaning is you know, helping people, you know, sp- spreading joy, creating value in a situation. And that's what I felt like I was doing on a day-to-day basis. I was helping create value and I was helping management teams through a really stressful time and coming out with great outcomes. And so that was what for me was success. And I don't think in general, most people take the time to define what is success for me. And it's a super important question. And, you know, sometimes success will look different at different stages of your life. You know, for me, when I was a litigator and I had Sam, success was, I didn't really, at that point, partnership wasn't what success was for me. Success was staying in my career, being a top-notch litigator, but also spending more time with with my kids. And I went part-time. And that, to me, was super successful. I kept my foot in the door. I still did trial work, but I also found for me what was an important balance. So it's really important at every juncture to think about what is success and what am I aiming at and what What's going to both bring me meaning, you know, keep me moving forward. And um, I love that you guys stepped back and looked at it from a broader perspective. I personally asked, do I feel like successful? Yeah, I love what I'm doing. You know, you always have times where you worry, you know, is that next client coming in or, you know, where are we taking this? I just hadn't my, I like you get to work with someone in my family. My son works with me, which I love. And we had an offsite yesterday, you know, where do we want to take this? What do we want to do with it? What does success look like for us? And um, I think that's a, a question that you, sh- everyone should take a little time to sort of think about and process. Do you think that success is being valuable and that recognition that I am needed? Or how does that play into the Well, journey? like on the exit front, like with, if I'm working with a management team, like I, I was up in Detroit a couple of weeks ago helping is a company probably two years out from sale. Great company, about hundred million revenue. It's two sons took over for their father who passed away. You know, what does success look like for them is super important. And my adding value for them was having them step back and look at their business from a broader perspective. How's a buyer going to look at this? They, they got two like pieces of the business. One's going to be really attractive one, maybe not so. So how do you build this business in the next two years to gain the value you want out of it? And equally important, what do you two want to do? If you want to take this business and keep growing it, then that's one way to look at it. If you want to find that buyer who's going to take it to the next level without you, then you got to build up your team. You know, there's different, you got to think about your end goals and an exit well enough in advance of that exit to set it up that you're you're going to still get the value you want and have the optionality you want. So for me, like value in an exit meeting is figuring out your exit goals and, and describing what is a process and how are you going to create value now? All those kinds of things that, you know, in PE, in theory, they're done throughout the whole period. Although I would argue even PE can do a better job of thinking about your, your exit goals and value creation. But 
for me, the value with working of owners is like helping them hone in on all these kind of topics. Yeah. Well, let's start with the PE side of the equation and exits. And through 20 years, dozens of transactions, billions of dollars of transactions, you have enough data point to speak to private equity, not just your own firm, but in talking with others. Yeah. Where do you think that private equity falls short in the lower middle market in terms of the exit phase uh, phase of a business? You know, I, I think it's sort of the forgotten child a little bit. And, you know, people are so focused on deal sourcing, closing the deal, value creation, and then it's like, and then we're going to sell it. Well, in my mind, that sell piece has to be throughout the whole life cycle of the whole period from day one. What are the warts we saw? What's going to drive value from the lens of the buyer? And I I just, too often it just sort of gets pushed aside a little. And there's just a lot of prep work, making sure you're following the right KPIs. You know, even PE, where this is their world, I just a lot of times exits are a little bit of an afterthought. One of those pieces, one is the preparation, but another is timing. Firms are starting to get more focused on this. I've talked to probably three different PE funds in the last six months who all admitted, hey, yeah, we really we're realizing we need to put more focus on exits, timing, how we're running them. You know, we think we're leaving. Well, how do we do that? Yeah. Like structurally, does that mean every single board meeting we begin with the end in mind? We bought it two years ago. We got three years left. Here's how we have collectively defined the end state. Like, how do you? What are the systems and processes that people need to implement? Well, I having that conversation for one from the exit perspective is important. You know, for for HKW, they put together an exit committee. And I think that was a really useful tool for focusing this. Board meetings, our ops meetings, I would report each ops meeting on exits, exit timing, where we are, what we're thinking, if there was an exit going on, what's going on with it. It was just having me as a dedicated exit resource just brought the topic up top of mind. And I think that was really important and helpful for our firm. There's a lot of ways to do it, but you, you have to make it a priority that you can think about the exit. If you had to make a, a guess on, we'll just say funds that are less than 500 million or less than a billion under management, maybe even less than 500, what percentage of firms do you think are doing it right in terms of actively, regularly incorporating exit discussions in their weekly, monthly, quarterly firm meetings, as well as with the portfolio company? I think it's pretty darn low. I really do. Like, I, I, I'm sure they do it in a less formulaic way, but I think they, yeah, I, I how do you assess, you know, if you're coming into a lower middle market firm, they have 10 portfolio companies, they're on fund two, for example. How do you assess if they're doing it right? Well, the first question is, what are you doing? Like, how, how are you assessing timing? Are you bringing in bankers? What are you, you know, for me, day one, I was assessing all that we learned in a process. Like, what, 
what learnings are you taking day one and how much are you thinking about that buyer lens as you're as you're thinking about strategy for example like add-ons it's easy to do you know an add-on that helps diversify you think oh this is this is going to be a great you know plus we're adding so much revenue and EBITDA out of this business but sometimes you're getting rid of half your buyer your strategic buyers because they don't know what to do with it you know we owned a company that it was in the auto parts and it had a medical piece to it and it was like this is great it's high margin it's good diversification but none of the car companies wanted anything to do with it and like we don't know what to do with this piece so making sure you're thinking at all levels on what's this going to do to the buyer universe? Is that add-on, the third add-on going to be looked at by a strategic, like, why did they buy us? This is going to be off the, on the chopping block in the first six months. Yeah, we, we don't know what to do with this. This isn't, this isn't fit. And, you know, maybe it makes it more interesting for a PE buyer and that's what you care about, but, you know, maybe not. Or I was just two days ago talking to a woman. I had worked with them, not through HKW, but in my exit work. And, they got bought by a PE company. They're really focused on add-ons, which is great. They're they're growing through add-ons, but they're taking the CEO, who is their chief revenue generator, and he's so focused on looking at add-ons, you know, they they're losing, they're not growing as fast. Mm-hmm. So you got to balance this out and look at the big picture. Okay, add-ons are great, but what am I doing to the base business? Because you got to grow that base business at the same time. So it's it's that kind of thinking that you always want to make sure, you know, it's easy to get into the weeds uh, of a company and, you know, think about it through the customer perspective or think about it through the employee perspective, but always got to keep that buyer lens on too. I mean, how often is the the team talking about it internally? Is that monthly? I mean, not with the portfolio company, not like board meetings, yeah. but how often yeah. are you talking about internally with well, the whole we did, it, we did it monthly. I was reported on you know what so was going on exits or you know, within the monthly ops package if you're meeting monthly time it's not necessarily a topic of great discussion on every company. I, every six months, we would sort of run through, okay, where are we? But, you know, just keeping an eye towards it. I, so does that mean like the... change from month to month, but it's on there. So is the idea as part of their monthly reporting and team meeting, here is the list of our current strategics, tier ones, our current financial buyers, tier ones, even if it's nine months into the process or nine months into... Uh, uh, post-close? Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to have a sense of who those buyers are. I worried less about, especially on the financial buyers, because you kind of don't know who's going to fall in love with your business. So we thought about buyers, but it was it was more of a broader context of how's this growth going to be viewed or which growth avenue that we're looking at is going to really juice interest. In terms of kind of the state of the industry right now with exits, there's a lot of pressure from LPs to have exits. (laughs) They want their money back. And it's a tough fundraising environment. So just want to kind of it's really tough. Want to get your take on exits right now 
and you know things that you're seeing firms do to navigate this balance of got to return capital but i also want to hold on a little bit longer until i can you know get a better exit how do you balance this what have you been seeing you know it's really interesting i was just i had a a yeah. I had done a retreat for for women in M&A. We had a little reunion a couple of weeks ago and I was talking to one of the women's at a PE fund, kind of mid to larger, well, small, upper end of the middle market. And they had just done three exits and were pretty active and they had gone really well. I think if you've got a good property, then don't keep waiting is my view. I, I personally felt often selling a little before you think you're ready is the way to go and operators and pe funds i'd be like oh well we want you know we want to grow we want to be at 20 and we're only at 18 so we're going to wait another six months well don't don't keep waiting because go now and you know have plenty of runway left it's a choppier market if you don't have a great company maybe not the time to go out because you're just people people are dropping off a lot quicker is what I hear. But um, I I think it's going to keep getting better. PE people don't like sitting on the sideline and they want to be buying, they want to be active. So that means if you're selling, you're going to have PE people looking at it. And I think strategics are still active. You got to, you got to understand valuations are coming down soon and that can hurt, especially when it's been so frothy and people paid high multiples for a long time. It, yeah, it's going to impact returns a little bit. Well, let's kind of take the other side of the table and talk about founders and owners and what they need to know about exits. And maybe starting off with, what do they typically not know about exits? Gosh, it's just like, you just feel, they don't know so much, you know? It's so interesting. I was talking to a guy recently and he's like, yeah. You know, company's going great. I want to sell. You know, I want to get, I'm sell by the end of the year and I want to go do something else. And he was talking about that. And I was like, okay, so like how much of the revenue is sort of tied to you bringing in? And he was like, oh, pretty much all of it. I'm like, what the hell are you going to sell if you're, if you're selling and you're moving on? It's like, but he just, he just didn't even, didn't even think about that. Like, what am I selling if I'm not here anymore? You know what I mean? It's understand. Oh, you know? I, oh, I think about that a lot. <laughs> Coming from a four-person digital marketing agency where two people are the co-founders, like, wait a second, I have no enterprise value. Exactly. <laughs> Jing and I are the enterprise value. <laughs> you got to give me a call. I'll give you some help on all this. Yeah, but you know, I've done I've done a couple of retreats now for business owners, and it's super interesting. It's just like you see their eyes getting bigger and bigger, and it's like, oh my gosh. There's so much to know, but knowledge is power. Like understanding, you know, what are the advisors you need? You know, what makes a good investment banker? You know, and how do I think about timing? What do I need to think about in terms of my team? And there's just, there's so much to think about and uh, it can be overwhelming, but if you can kind of put a box around the things that you need to think about and just sort of work your way through it. It's very doable and it's going to create value and optionality. Well, let's dive into 
what is the team of advisors that founders, owners, sellers need to have? You don't need to have me, but it's pretty helpful. Um. <laughs> Same here. Mar- digital marketing firm. You need to talk about your company. Don't people buy it. No, uh, you do need a good lawyer that has done M&A. But first and foremost, you need a great investment banker. If you're really, really small, maybe it's more of a broker, but it's got to be an investment banker that you like, you connect with, you're going to be in the trenches with, you trust. They should understand your industry. But to me, equally important, they got to know how to run a competitive process and you got to know how to drive value. And it's hard to to suss that out sometimes, but there are ways to do that. That's super important. You got to get your wealth advisor so you're not paying way more tax. On the point of investment banker, like such a good example of that, we we were looking at looking at doing a two million dollar deal, mm-hmm. and I was asking a friend who's been in the industry for over twenty five years, investment banking, but they had never done a deal at that side of the market. Yeah. So the the, the size, of the transaction, the dynamics are so different. How you structure the deal, what that seller is willing to take, is completely different than the typical deal that they do. And it was right. just like that reminder, like, oh, yeah. you have to be someone who understands not just the industry, the business, but also has actually done the size of transactions. That's right. That's right. And you don't, you know, you actually don't want some of these big firms, you know, you don't want a bulge bracket firm if you're not a real huge company because you're not going to get the attention. They, you know, they may know the industry really well, but you want someone who knows process, who knows middle market, who knows the middle market buyers, who's going to, you know, be there driving it. So, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to thinking about who do you want and uh, finding that right advisor is super, super important. If you're looking at a, let's say you have a business that does five to 10 million of EBITDA and a Chicago-based investment bank that has a hundred plus bankers. And you're like, hey, this is a good name. They've done lots of deals in this industry. How do you balance that versus your boutique that has maybe two MDs, a couple analysts and associates, but they have actually done deals in that industry? Do you go with a larger name that has all the systems and processes, but you might not get the attention of a senior? It's going to be run by a VP. Like, how do you manage that? Well, for me personally, I made sure the MD ran it. But, you know, you have you have to know to push to, to make sure. I found, you know, if there's an angle, there's a lot of, you know, it's interesting. I was, I was just talking to Rob Brown on a, a deal that with a, a company I'm working with. It's, you know, they're great, Lincoln, great firm, wondering if this was too small. And he's like, you know, we, I discussed the, the, uh, the industry and what they're doing. He's like... We have a ton of experience there. We have an angle and it's something where we're trying to build it out more. So if there's a reason for a bigger firm to get interested, then, you know, I'm perfectly comfortable with that. There's a lot of companies out there like you and you you can kind of feel when whether or not the bank's super interested in, in getting the mandate. If you don't feel like, oh man, they want to take this out, then you got you to gotta think twice about it. 
What, what are some of the other advisors that are important to have around uh, an exit process? Well, you got to do a QVE, so you need your your you need CPAs that are not your typical CPAs, um, your usual whoever does your audit. You can't have them do the QVE. It's like the hen garden the garden the hen house, the fox garden the hen house. Oh yeah, we do it all right. Um, you'd be surprised. Great, great firms sometimes miss things, and it's a different perspective for the buyer. So you need to have good CPAs. You got to do environmental. Um, one thing I've started doing, which I love doing is management presentation coaching. So a firm will bring me in at management presentation time or a PE group to just to work directly with the team on making sure they are articulating the story in a way that generates the most interest, that they understand and are putting a box around detractors and that they, you know, just do the best they can to really connect with buyers and show excitement. And I, I love doing that. I think that is a real benefit. It's the most crucial juncture is the first time the team is, is meeting buyers is super important. So that's, that's yeah. been. Well, let's, let's double click on that in management presentations. What are the most common mistakes that exec teams are making when speaking with buyers? Well, you know, it's it's a little bit hard because oftentimes the management presentation is coming directly out of a SIM or a SIP. And so they're really dense. And I think it's easy to get lost in all the words and all the data and lose track of what they're really passionate about and being able to really tell that story in a way that buyers can connect with it. So when I do MP coaching, it's making sure I understand the story. It's making sure that the management team really understands that buyer lens that we talked about. So what's really driving value for these buyers and what's going to cause them concern and what are the key questions about and making sure they're ready for that and thinking about their business from that perspective. Cause then I think it helps them deliver that message better in a way that, you know, the buyers can connect with. But I, I see, you know, they get nervous. They're not used to presenting to, buyers. And I see groups that will, you know, they'll have maybe a head of sales or a head of ops who's never been in front of the board, never really presented. And it's easy to get sort of stuck and tripped up. So if you, I would suggest make sure whatever team you're going to have presenting in a management presentation, make sure you get them in front of the board now and then so that they're a little bit more used to that kind of presenting. And that can really help. How early before uh, a formal exit begins, should you start to speak with, you know, your head of sales, your head of ops, who might not be either at all exposed to what the private equity life cycle is or the bigger part of the big business? Super interesting question. And it really depends on the business. Like for me, that's why if you just get them in presenting to the board, it doesn't necessarily have to be about knowing an exit's coming. Usually I, my preference and what I always did was any team that's going to be presenting, I want them in the know. I want them in the discussions. I want them being a part of the the development of the SIP because if they just come in, like I did some management presentation coaching not too long ago where only the CEO and CFO had been part of the discussions. So these other people were just it makes them a little crunchy. They didn't quite know 
what the key themes and drivers were. Whereas if you have that whole team part of the the exit process in terms of the kickoff of the bankers and getting the management presentation ready in the data room, then they understand those themes much better and they'll be much more sort of comfortable and feel more versed in it. Um, but some people are, are uncomfortable sharing the information very broadly because they're afraid it will get out. I had one deal where the CEO sent a letter to every single customer that they were about, they were about to go to the market. I've never seen that before, but he didn't, he didn't, it was in the aerospace world. He didn't want one of his competitors using it against him. So he was like, Hey, I'd rather have it come from me and I can define wow. the message. How widespread do you think it is where at the beginning of, you know, just after the transaction that the, that the whole team actually knows, Hey, we've been, a, we've been bought by a financial firm they typically will own this for five to seven years. I want everyone to know the same page here. You know, the former family is going to be part of it to this extent, but this is what life is like in this new stage versus how much do the new, the financial, the private equity firms, the management are almost like scared of that in terms of like employee retention. Like what have you seen? I think a lot are, but to me, crafting that message and getting out in front of it is really important. And it's important, you know, if you're a founder owner, you're the one setting the stage or you're the CEO, people are looking to you to take their cues. Is this scary? Do, should I be looking for another job? Is this just going to be, you know, is the CEO going to stay on with it and, and keep things going? You know, you got you to be really thoughtful about framing that message and getting it out in front of people. I've always been more towards the trust your people, let them know. I mean, you, you doesn't mean everybody, but it, the key members of management and team, you know, if they're good folks, let you know, bring them in and let them be a part of it and understand it. And you're likely to have less attrition if you can get them excited about what it means. Like, especially if you're a PE fund that lets people invest and you get people excited about, you know, rolling over or or taking you know, their money out of their, you know, out of their, someone, some, I know someone who did it out of their 401k, which probably wasn't the sport, but, you know, and invest in it, that gets people excited about this new turn. And if you frame this as a huge opportunity for employees, then that changes the whole way they feel about both the ownership and next steps. And I've seen it, you know, in terms of exits, you can get so much more value if people are excited and want to invest. So why not let that team show that excitement? Let's let's get further into that idea on exit goals and what is a exercise that management teams, founders, owners can have, you know, in the next few weeks with their teams. If they're like, all right, we're going to have a working lunch that might flow over to a dinner, <laughs> but let's talk about exit goals. Like where do they start? What are the must have topics in that discussion around exit goals? Yeah, I think it's a little different for sort of PE versus founder owners and, and how far the discussion goes down. So for goals, if you're a founder owner, you own the whole company a lot of the exit goal discussion really has to be around what do you want out of an exit and what do you want your next chapter to be? 
you know, do you want to keep going? Do you want to move on? Do you want to be a part of it, but not full time? Is this just about diversifying your wealth? I mean, understanding, and, you know, I do that exercise as part of like the retreats and I'm putting together an exit course that will deal with this as well. But so doing a little bit of that soul searching is really important. And that's not, that doesn't go down to the next layer of the team, but that founder owner needs to understand, hey, is uh, is CFO Sally, does she want to keep going for at least another five years? It, am, I, am I presenting Sally as part of the future of this business or Hank, the head of sales who's cranking and bringing in all this business? You know, if, if Hank's going to get in front of buyers and say, yeah, you know, I'm getting kind of tired, I think maybe another year, and owner doesn't know that, you look like it, it doesn't help your process. So understanding what's your longevity, you know, if you can invest in this, do you want to invest in it? Talking about those kind of goals. Are you looking for a strategic partner that, you know, takes some pressure off the team, but enables maybe a different kind of growth? Is that really appealing to you? Or you want a financial buyer that, you know, is going to basically let you keep running the business, but be a good support? You know, those are the kind of goals that are worth thinking about. Yeah, it's. I was sorry. How do you get more like granular about it? Like one of my goals: make a lot of money, take care of my employees, and yeah, I probably want to do another business afterwards. And I, well, yeah, that's where it becomes important to know what are your options, and that's where I think a lot of business owners don't really know what they think about selling their company, and they think, oh, that means I'm, I sell and I'm done. And they don't really understand what PE means and what it can mean for them and their company. And what does it mean to sell to one of your competitors? And having a better understanding of, of what those different exit avenues can mean for you, your company, your team, your customers, helps you then think about what are my goals. But until you have a little bit of knowledge about what your options are, it's hard to set those goals to your point. So when you look back at 20 plus years of exits and the three years of doing this with your firm, are there any particular stories that stand out that kind of remind you why you enjoy what you do? Oh, you know, gosh, I loved working with these different management teams. There's so many great people. I'll tell you one, one story. It was a company, it was a Canadian company. It was a great management team. It was not the founders. They, we had, we had brought in a new CEO they were growing nicely. We actually, we hired Callen. They were, they were awesome. We went out to 400, over 400 buyers. I mean, it was a huge process. And we had like 49 IOIs. And I mean, it was, it was just, everything went super well. And one of the reasons it went so well was that team was all in. Like when you talk about, they wanted to roll everything they could roll. And they just believed in this business and they were able, I mean, you just have to remember buyers aren't buying the company for what it is. They're buying for what it's going to be. And the more you can bring that future company to life, the better. So the fact that these people wanted to, they were all in, that brings to life that the future is real. And they had, you know, the new business and they had the new avenues and they had this traction and that's just like so fun when pieces fall into place, which doesn't mean there's it's not a roller coaster because like even with that one, right before the close, their biggest contract got put on hold by the Canadian 
government's like, Ugh. but you know, you work through it. So that's fun. Um, some are a little more painful memories, but you know, you learn from all of them. And I'm a firm believer in life. If you treat challenges as opportunities, that's what they become. So in the exit, you just got to remember, even these challenges are opportunities. And the idea of pain is interesting because when we first started on this journey of entrepreneurship in 2016 with the first business debt maven, like every bump in the road feels like it's a near-death situation. And then you get it through the first business that doesn't work, but then the set business works and you realize like, wait a second, maybe we just need to change our perspective that this is part of a journey. And as long as there is house security, food security, health security, like if there's X in the bank or Y in the bank, as long as basic needs are met, like it's just part of the journey. And we're going to look back. I look back at like the debt maven days in 2016, 2017, we lived in a 450 square foot apartment and our new and our newborn was there. And then my in-laws came from China for there. <laughs> it was tight. But then I look back on that. Like five years later, I'm like, I am so glad that we went through that process and we didn't give up. And that really is, it's not that it's a good feeling, but it just creates this overall sense of fulfillment that we experienced it together. Mm -hmm. We succeeded in that we didn't give up. And it all goes back to, takes us full circle, Jordan. What is success? And part of success is viewing failures as learning experiences and taking those days where you're like, why didn't I do that differently? And saying, okay, what have I learned from it? I'm going to do it differently. You know, what's, how do I take this forward? And um, that's just, you know, mindset so crucial to all of that. I love hearing your journey. That's, it's just great. You know? Well, if you had a, if you were to come out with a book and it was about your life, what would the potential title of your life story be? And what would the first few chapters be called? Well, I've, I've toyed around with writing a book and started, there's a few that have come to my mind. Like here's, here's the story. One is like something about wisdom from the universe or I'd rather be here now. So I was, this was my last trial and I was as with all my trials, a nervous wreck. I, I knew I was going to HKW, but I was like, Hey, can I hold off? I'm, I'm lead chair on this trial. And they're like, fine, fine. So I'm driving down to, to the trial and I'm so nervous. I feel like throwing up. I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? Why didn't I pass the baton? And this beat up old pickup truck pulls right in front of me and it's got a bumper sticker that says, I'd rather be here. And it's like, boom, embrace this moment, do the best I can in this. You're never going to do a trial again. Just put it all out there. And, and it was like, it made all the difference in the world. I cranked at that trial. I was cross-examining the CPA and like doing my opening argument. And I was like, 
I'd rather be here, you know, embrace where you are and um, make the most of it. Think about that journey and where you want to go, but be in that moment. And I, I feel like with, especially with technology today, it's so damn hard to be present, especially if when you got a phone in your hand. So I think my book would be, I'd rather be here. And I believe that is a good place to conclude this discussion. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time for this. This has been fantastic. Awesome.